Welcome to Live Well with Southwell. Southwell is dedicated to helping you be equipped with the best tools and knowledge to make sure you and your family live a healthy life. Live Well with Southwell features interviews with experts across many areas of healthcare and wellness. We hope you enjoy listening and most importantly, living well. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Liza Tillman, and today we are talking with Dr. Johnny Stevens. Dr. Stevens is an oncologist who practices at the Anita Stewart Oncology Center and is here today to discuss breast cancer with us. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Stevens. Thank you for having me. Let's get started by getting to know you a little bit better. Can you tell us where you're from and how you ended up in Tifton? Well, I'm a Georgia boy. I'm from Atlanta. Okay. I spent time in Louisiana and wanted to get back home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Tifton had an opportunity for me, and I've enjoyed being here. Okay. How long have you been with us? I've been here since 2011. Wow. Okay. Quite a bit of time. So can you tell us a little bit about your family and your educational background? Well, I'm the uh, father of five children. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I know. I have two in college. I can't hardly believe it. At you this don't point. look old enough for that. I am. <laughs> but I'm, uh, again, I'm from Atlanta. I went to a small liberal arts school in Atlanta called Clark Atlanta University. Okay. Went from there to uh, do medical school at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, mm-hmm. Tennessee. Okay. And did an internship in residency in internal medicine at LSU in Lafayette, Louisiana practiced internal medicine for six years in private practice and then went back and did a fellowship at the uh, Feisweiler Cancer Center in Shreveport, Louisiana in 2008. So what made you decide to go the oncology route? Family history, really. Um, I had an aunt who passed from breast cancer years ago before I even went to medical school. Yeah, I always knew I wanted to be a physician and her battle with breast cancer just really made me want to get involved and Mm -hmm help other people who are facing challenges like she did. Well, that's great. I'm so glad that this happens to be our topic today for you. So can you tell us a little bit about where your practice, the clinic, is located? I'm right here at the Anita Stewart Oncology Clinic. We are employees of the TIF Regional System. We're in a clinic setting um, outside of the hospital. Can you give us an overview of all the services or a few of the services offered at the Anita Stewart Oncology Center? So we're a practice in hematology and oncology, meaning that not only do we see the uh, things that people are common with in terms of solid tumors, that being uh, the most common things, breast cancer, obviously, lung, colon cancer, prostate cancer, really any solid tumor, female malignancies such as uterine or cervical cancer, okay. uh, et cetera, even hematologic malignancies such as lymphoma, chronic leukemias, acute leukemias. But we also do benign hematology along with malignant hematology, including things such as just anemia. Patients will come for a workup of just anemia. And often this is how you may find uh, a malignancy such as a colon cancer. Mm -hmm. We also do things such as B12 deficiencies, Mm -hmm. things called hemoglobinopathies. You hear about sickle cell and thalassemias, those type of things as well. And radiation oncology, that's at the... Radiation oncology is also offered. We have one radiation oncologist, Dr. Walker, Mm -hmm. and he works uh, together with us to treat most of these solid tumors. Okay. So I know I asked that question because I think sometimes people think since we're in little little South Georgia, mm-hmm. small town, that we can't provide the same services that you can get in Atlanta. And I hear so much from our patients that they're able to get the same treatments and the same procedures here that they don't have to travel. Yes. There are some things that we don't offer that sure. would be um, clinical trials and right. a lot of uh, malignancies, but As far as the common malignancies, uh, we're going to provide those services right here in Tifton. And you're going to get the same care that you would get 
as you go into Atlanta because yes. some of these things are very standardized in mm-hmm. terms of management. That's so great to hear. I, I know that um, our our patients, I, we've heard nothing but wonderful things come from your patients and the care that they receive from you guys. So well done. So let's dive into our main topic today. So it's October uh, and that's obviously Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we know that thanks to the popularity of Breast Cancer Awareness Month every October, it's one of the more well-known cancers, would you say? I, I, would, I would definitely mm-hmm. think that. How prevalent is it in the United States today and have those numbers improved over the past 20 years? Well, breast cancer is still the most common malignancy diagnosed in women in the United States. It's the second leading cause of mortality from Mm -hmm. cancer in the United States, second only to lung cancer. Wow. There's a worldwide incidence of somewhere around 1.7 million new cases yearly. Wow. With the incidence having increased pretty significantly uh, in the early 80s to 90s due to improved uh, screening right. techniques. Yeah. More women began, uh, the mammogram became more available mm-hmm. 30 to 40 years ago, and the increased use of mammograms led to an increased incidence of cases. Right. But this also was associated with somewhat of a decrease in mortality over the last 20 to 30 years of about 23% or so just because of mammogram. That's great. We know that is due to early detection. Yeah, which we we preach every October and and for every cancer, but for for sure breast cancer. What are the risk factors for breast cancer and can it be prevented at all? There are several risk factors, but the main risk factor is kind of obvious is female sex. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, And then uh, age uh, are your two biggest risk factors in the United States. There are genetic mutations. Some women have a, a high penetrance mutation called a BRCA1 or yes. BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, women who have these mutations have a lifetime risk of developing breast cancer mm-hmm. upwards of 50 percent. Wow. But then you also have the majority or more women, rather, who have these low penetrance gene mutations that we're not able to recognize as readily as a BRCA mutation. But they may have multiple family members, especially first degree Uh, family members who may have disease as well. Family history, uh, gender, age, these are risk factor. Genetic mutations are risk factor. Obesity has been shown to have some increased risk of hormone receptor positive uh, diseases. Okay. Nulliparity, meaning not having any children. As we have discovered, pregnancy causes terminal differentiation of breast Mm -hmm. tissue, breast parenchyma. Okay. And it confers some risk reduction Mm -hmm. for women. So nulliparity is one. The early onset of um, menarche or uh, menses in women or late menopause. Okay. Uh, because what you're getting is this unopposed estrogen exposure that increases the risk for these hormone receptor positive diseases. You mentioned obesity. Obesity does have an increased risk, as I previously mentioned, mm-hmm. possibly due to effects on estrogen, but it's even more of a risk factor for women who are older and also the use of alcohol. You know, one oh, really? alcoholic beverage daily and older women also confer some increased risk, whereas exercise uh, itself may reduce the risk of breast cancer. I know our listeners, if they listen to every episode, are so tired of me telling them that they need to exercise. Yeah, but it reason. affects everything. <laughs> that's why I ask everybody who comes in. It really does affect pretty much every part of your body if you just do a little bit of exercise. So I'm not going to dwell on that because I know they're tired of hearing me say that. It's true though. You found that some increased waist circumference can be associated with Mm. an increased risk. So what you just said, there's some factors obviously that we cannot control. There's a few factors that we can control. Um, I'm very interested and I think a lot of people are about this, this genetic 
um, mutation that you were talking about. Is there a reason for just a woman who has no family history or maybe, you know, somebody far back might have had breast cancer for us to get tested for that gene? Or is that is that a common test? So the gene mutation, especially the uh, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 mm-hmm. gene mutations, should be tested in certain families, certain individuals. Okay. So not every woman who comes with breast cancer should be tested. Okay. However, we find that women who have what's called triple negative breast disease, which doesn't exhibit, present rather, estrogen receptors or what's called a HER2 receptor, mm-hmm. these women are a good candidates for being tested. Women who have developed a breast cancer before the age of 50 or have a family member who has done so as well, uh, especially if you have more than one first degree family member. Okay. And then also ovarian cancer. If there's a family uh, history mm-hmm. of ovarian cancer, mm-hmm. that also is a good reason to do uh, genetic testing. Okay. Now, if you do test the youngest person in the family who developed a breast or ovarian cancer and that test comes up negative, it's unlikely that testing another family member is of any okay. benefit. Right. Unless we think that the first individual had this spontaneous breast cancer. Mm. Because these BRCA mutations are autosomal dominant, and they tend to, meaning that they're easily passed down amongst the paternal or maternal line. Okay. People may be familiar with cases like Angelina Jolie. I think she Mm -hmm. had a a BRCA mutation and had risk reduction surgery, which would include a bilateral uh, mastectomy Mm -hmm. or even a, what's called a subpingo oophorectomy, removing the ovaries, reducing the risk of ovarian cancer because these BRCA mutations confer risk for ovarian and breast cancers, Mm. BRCA2 more than BRCA1. There's also some risk in men with male breast cancers um, and also with um, prostate cancer. Oh, really? I haven't heard that before. But you know, this brings up the the discussion of male breast cancer as well. That's something that we see a couple of cases a year, and it shouldn't be forgotten as well. Sure. Usually it's only about 1% of uh, cases, but uh, we do treat it in a similar fashion. These men typically have some problem with testosterone uh, deficiency, oh, okay. possibly things such as obesity or cirrhosis can lead to some of these deficiencies. Mm-hmm. There are chromosomal diseases such as uh, Klinefelter syndrome that confer risk to men as well. So if you know you have that, you're going to probably Correct. get tested yeah. and, and, and checked out um, right. as you age. So, mm-hmm. well, that's, I was going to ask about that because I think the Angelina Jolie thing was a very, um, very popular story when it happened because it seems pretty drastic. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you have that gene, are you going to go ahead and, and take those? And to be fair, I'm not certain that she had the gene. I had heard the story and I never yeah. researched it. Well, it was her. So it was celebrities for yeah. sure. I've, I've definitely heard that. It did popular. bring a lot of awareness. And yeah. It brought uh, patients in with good questions about sure. uh, genetic counseling and yeah. genetic mutations and so forth. But, you know, I do think that it's still important to remember that. The majority of women are not going to have a genetic mutation. Okay. Um, another good reason to get tested as well is if there are multiple family members who have never been tested. Uh, okay. That's another right. reason to test. Mm-hmm. What are the current guidelines for how often we should get mammograms and perform self-breast exams? And when should we start those as women? So uh, self-breast exams often tell women it's best to start getting familiar with your breast, mm-hmm. uh, familiar with the, um, uh, the contour of the mm-hmm the skin uh, overlying the breast, the echo texture, the irregularities that you may find in the breast. I will say you're with yourself every day. Your doctor's right. seeing you, you know, every three to six months sometimes. Yeah. But the breast exam itself is not a great tool. Often there's a lot of false positives 
uh, okay. even from the doctor who performs it in really? the clinic. Yes. Okay. Um, so it's not the best way to do this. So the mammogram is still our best tool. There are some varying th- schools of thought on yeah. uh, when <laughs> it should be initiated and mm-hmm. when you should stop doing them. Mm-hmm. The American Cancer Society, Society rather, will say uh, to start screening at age 40. Definitely start doing annual screenings at the, by the age of 45. Mm-hmm. And this should continue until about the age of 70 to 75. So the uh, risk reduction in mortality, mm-hmm. uh, it's been about 23% or so because of mammogram and women starting at age 50. Okay. Over the age of 70 or younger than the age of 50, 40 to 49, the risk reduction is not as robust, but it is still some there. That's why the American Cancer Society recommends starting at age 40. Then once you reach the age of 70, if the woman has a you know, good performance status, a mm-hmm. uh, life expectancy of at least 10 years or more, uh, you could continue screening at that point. Okay. So there has been, and this we can just talk about this, There, I know that depending on who you ask, it, it really is different. And of course, like with family history, right, right? You might need to start a little bit earlier. Especially if you're proven to have one of these mutations. So if there's okay. a BRCA mutation proven, uh, then certainly you may start earlier than the youngest family member even. Some people okay. say 10 years before the uh, youngest family member who was affected. Okay. And again, people who listen to this are going to be tired of me saying this, but would you say that this all kind of starts with having regular visits with your primary care physician? Cause they're kind of the first person that they're going to go through your history with things like this and, and make sure that they find out all these different pieces, check you for things. And then if, if we need to come see you, that's, that's when we do it. And, sure. and they're going to make sure that we get our mammograms kind of take the guesswork out of it. Right. Like, so, cause like you've, you've mentioned, there's so many different factors, um, but, but so important to just keep up with that annually. Definitely, because your our primary doc is, as you said, going to put all this information together. They're right. going to look at that family history. They're going to perform a uh, clinical exam. Even though the clinical exam isn't great, it's something that may pick up on obvious things. Right. They're also going to arrange your screening, not just for breast cancer, but the other cancers that need to be screened at a certain age as well. How important is early detection? Very important. You know, the staging of disease can pretty much determine what the overall survival would be based upon stage and earlier the detection, the less aggressive therapy you may require, meaning that an early stage or stage zero or stage one, which by the way, breast cancers are stage from zero, which is non-invasive disease, mm-hmm. which can be handled with just local care, usually just surgical care, okay. perhaps uh, radiation, depending on that surgery, mm-hmm. and perhaps something called chemoprophylaxis, where we would provide an oral hormone okay. therapy, hormonal mm-hmm. therapy to women who are candidates. The higher the staging, stage one, stage two, mm-hmm. stage three, you're now talking about the possible addition of chemotherapy to a definitive surgery and uh, often radiation, depending on lymph node status. Mm-hmm. Uh, these things are, the staging again is based upon tumor size, mm-hmm. the involvement of lymph nodes. And finally, the presence or uh, metastatic disease, disease that is spread, uh, which is now stage four disease, mm-hmm. which is still an incurable disease uh, in this country, obviously treatable, and mm-hmm. we are able to provide benefit for survival. But yes, early detection is paramount to achieving a cure. And I think as women, we 
We always talk about that we take care of everybody else and tend to ignore ourselves. And I know for a lot of these things, what we're talking about is pretty scary, right? And you might want to just go on and and ignore it and and pretend like these things don't exist and not take care of yourself. But it's so important to catch, like you said, not just breast cancer, but anything else early, right? That's right. And also not to ignore your body. Yeah. Because there are several instances of uh, women who are present with advanced uh, localized tumors and often even metastatic or disease that is spread. Mm-hmm. And you'll talk with these women and you'll find out that they felt this uh, mass in their breast, you know, a, a year ago oh. and they've been caring for it. <laughs> yeah. Even to the point that I've seen uh, women with obvious tumors of the breast that have even eroded the skin, oh, man. Uh, begin to drain, begin to smell bad, and they will still take care of this wound. Oh. Uh, so we ask that you don't ignore the signs that your body is uh, giving you. Yeah, There can be simple things with the breast, as in just thickening of the skin. Mm-hmm. That's why I uh, say get familiar with your breast, because yeah. if you notice that the skin is darkening where it wasn't dark before, okay. if it seems to be thick, some people will define it as an orange peel type of look. I haven't the, heard uh, that before. Yeah, It's called pewter orange. It has a thickening and kind of feels like an orange. Yeah. If you see something like that, if you see a change in the nipple, mm-hmm. the nipple can invert, turn down in other right. words. There's discharge uh, from the nipple that, any discharge, honestly, but mm-hmm. if it's something that's very thick or unusual, especially bloody, don't ignore these things. Yeah. And then I often tell women who are doing their self-exams, to make sure they examine not only the majority of the breast tissue, but the upper outer quadrant of the breast mm-hmm. uh, and underneath their arm and what's called the axilla. Okay. Uh, because you may find something there as well. So what are the most common types of breast cancer? So ductal uh, carcinoma and lobular carcinoma are the two most common types. Okay. There's no difference in how we treat them based on uh, whether they are ductal or lobular. Mm-hmm. In the invasive setting where there's actual invasive breast cancer as you think of it. Mm-hmm. However, there can be these benign proliferative type of diseases that also require attention if you have to have a biopsy mm-hmm. and they tell you you have something called a typical ductal hyperplasia or a typical lobular hyperplasia or even a stage zero disease called lobular carcinoma in situ. These are non-invasive benign proliferative diseases. Okay. Uh, you know, these are the most common types and these would be addressed with chemoprophylaxis. We okay. actually yeah. put these women on a pill to try to reduce their risk of developing uh, breast cancer. We use something, we were using something uh, called a Gale, uh, risk, Gale model for risk assessment. Okay. And we would get patients sent to us over the last few years. This risk assessment model is based upon really family history. It doesn't use really good molecular studies mm-hmm. since it's not the... Um, you know, it's not a uh, truly a linear uh, result, but it does let you know if there's an increased risk. The lifetime risk for developing breast cancer for women in the U.S. is about 12 percent or one in eight over a lifetime. That means up to age 90, 95. Mm-hmm. If a woman is goes through the Gale model for risk assessment, which you can actually do on your on your own. Okay. And it's going to look at your age. It's going to look at age of menarche, the onset of menstrual cycles, mm-hmm. age at the delivery of your firstborn. Okay. Because an age uh, younger than 30 is considered to confer some risk reduction. Okay. It's also going to ask, have you had any biopsies in the past? How many have you had? Mm-hmm. And how many family members have had uh, breast cancer? Mm-hmm. And it takes all this information 
and it comes out with a essentially a score. Okay. And if your score is uh, 1.66 percent or higher mm-hmm. uh, for a risk of developing breast cancer, you may be a candidate for chemoprophylaxis. Really? Yes. So is that something that you can find online or is that something you have um, to do through your doctor? Right now, I think the care model is down, actually. Uh, really? So we haven't been able to use it. Okay. Lately. I may double check that. Okay. <laughs> um, but that's a just another tool for uh, risk assessment. But you can actually think about those things. You know, am, sure. am I someone who's had, you know, more than one breast biopsy for this lesion that they're looking at mm-hmm. over the last several years? Do I have an auntie? Uh, did my mother or sister... Mm-hmm have a diagnosis of breast cancer, and then start looking at your estrogen exposure. You know, did you start having menstrual cycles, uh, you know, at age 10 or uh, younger? Mm-hmm. And uh, have you been exposed to estrogen for a longer period of time? Or are you having a late onset of menopause? Okay. You know, these are questions you could bring to your primary doctor, and they may be able to run that risk assessment model. Okay. So does taking birth control increase your risk for breast cancer? No, it does not. Okay. Um, you know, Part of the reason for the decreased mortality mm-hmm. or even uh, some of the decreased incidence with breast cancer has been the uh, reduction in the use of postmenopausal hormonal therapies. There was a time when a lot of women would take these estrogen progesterone combination drugs for vasomotor symptoms of uh, menopause. Mm-hmm. And that in itself conferred some risk. Okay. But the, uh, oral contraceptives have not been shown okay. to do that. Okay. What are the treatment options available for someone who has had a breast cancer diagnosis? And can patients receive those treatments here in Tifton? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly they can receive those treatments in Tifton. So, again, treatment is based upon stage. Okay. So yep. the earlier the stage, the the less likely you'll need to see me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, a stage zero, stage one breast cancers, again, may be handled with just surgery depending on whether you have a partial or total mastectomy is a uh, conversation to have with uh, your surgeon. Mm-hmm. I will say that often with a partial mastectomy, we may need to add some local therapy with radiation mm-hmm. that may not be required with a total mastectomy. However, the total mastectomy also may require breast reconstruction. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. As we uh, go into stage two disease or stage three disease, and we have lymph node involvement. In most cases, we're going to require chemotherapy to be added to treatment uh, and also radiation again. Mm-hmm. And then as we uh, approach stage four disease, there's often not a real benefit to any surgery at this point. Radiation uh, is used for palliation of local symptoms such as breast pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, a bone pain rather. Yeah. Or for a uh, a breast mass that may be conferring some pain or yeah. needs to be uh, removed, you can add in some uh, salvage surgeries, uh, you know, at that point. But then it's going to be mostly uh, systemic therapy, okay. uh, which would be uh, chemotherapy or some type of hormonal therapy. So it's probably different for every patient, right? It is. Yeah. It is. There's no, um, you know, just cookie cutter way right. to do this. But as I mentioned, there's some standardization. Mm-hmm through what's called the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, mm-hmm. there are some things that you just have to do. Yeah. Uh, these are going to be category one options, meaning that we all agree this is proper management. Okay. And at our center, at the Anita Stewart Oncology Center, we hold breast cancer conferences yeah. that is attended by not only the breast cancer navigators, but the pathologist, mm-hmm. the radiologist to uh, view this, uh, the film. Yeah. So we can try to come up with the plan here, the pathologist who gives us the diagnosis, the surgeon 
who either initially met the patient and did the biopsy and is now trying to plan a surgical management, be it a partial or total mastectomy, the radiation oncologist Mm -hmm. who's going to look at the case and uh, also discuss surgical management strategies and Mm -hmm. where is the role for radiation. And then, of course, the oncologist as well, or who really sort of takes the, the lead on the management after the surgeon has finished local therapy. Okay. And how many oncologists are at the Anita Stewart Oncology There are four Center? of us there. Okay. It's myself, Dr. Stevens, mm-hmm. Dr. Milner, who has been a, a stalwart in this community. That's right. <laughs> uh, forever. He's the one who really built this thing yeah. uh, for us to be there. Dr. Shaw, mm-hmm. who serves as our director. And then Dr. Uh, Ravi Potty is the other oncologist there with myself. And I believe, are y'all an accredited breast center? Yes. Okay. That's a, that's a really big deal. Is, and yeah. I know that gives patients a lot of confidence. And we should give our uh, team, including Miss yes. um, uh, Denise McAdams and uh, Dr. Shaw and every all our nursing staff, yeah. a lot of credit for helping us get that accreditation. Yeah, absolutely. And I Dr. know- Dr. Johnson, can't forget Dr. Johnson. No, absolutely <laughs> not. No, we can't leave anybody out. But like I said, I know that our patients- just walk away with having such great experiences during a very scary and awful time during their life. And I know that uh, they appreciate y'all being in the community and being so knowledgeable and accessible. Well, you know, I think you'll find that patient care that we offer is, uh, is the best. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I really think so. I mean, it takes special people to be in medicine, but it takes an even more empathetic person when you're doing this type of care with patients who are, as you said, often present very fearful. We try to, per, to quell that fear. You know, sometimes patients appear who are hopeless. Yeah. Uh, we try to instill hope. And then we also like to show them that we're very knowledgeable, that we're up to date with current practice. Yeah. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Stevens. If you would like more information about the Anita Stewart Oncology Center, you can visit myselfhole.com slash oncology or call 229-353-7720. Thank you for listening to this episode of Live Well with Southwell. If you have a question for a healthcare expert or a topic you'd like us to discuss, send an email to info at myselfhole.com. Until next time, live well.